This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the 1A Record Club. The 1A Record Club. This is 1A. 1A. 1A Record Club. Welcome to the 1A Record Club. 50 years ago, at a back-to-school party in New York's Bronx Borough, hip-hop was born. DJ Cool Herc is the man credited with starting it all. His mix likely sounded a little something like this. In the five decades since its creation, hip-hop has become one of the world's most popular music genres. And it's evolved a lot since its early years when groups like the Sugar Hill Gang were played on the radio. Not only have women and LGBTQ artists gained fans and recognition in the hip-hop scene, its influences have spread to nearly every corner of the world. From South Korea with rapper Zico, to Nigeria with Burna Boy. For this installment of the 1A Record Club, we explore 50 years of hip-hop. We get into what the origin story of hip-hop tells us about its power as an art form and what the future of the genre might look like in years to come. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Let's get into it. Joining us here in studio is Natalie Hopkinson. She's a professor of media, democracy, and society at American University. She's also the author of Deconstructing Tyrone, a new look at black masculinity in the hip-hop generation. Natalie, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. And I'll note that American University holds the license to WAMU, the public radio station that produces 1A, but they have no editorial say in our content or guest choices. And joining us from Seattle is Dusty Henry. He's the associate director of editorial at KEXP. That's a listener-supported music radio station based in Seattle. He's also a writer of KEXP's 50 Years of Hip Hop podcast. Dusty, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jen. So we asked you what hip hop means to you, and here's what some of you said. Hip hop is a large part of the soundtrack of my youth. It is timely and creative, a blend of beats, voice, poetry, and samples. It is pure inspiration with the power to educate on contemporary issues and history, all while making it absolutely impossible to sit still and take it all in. For me, hip-hop is the infinite possibilities of endless expression, a continuation of the lineage that is rooted in the blues, evolved into jazz, and then later into rock and roll and punk, 
Even though we like origin stories and can pinpoint DJ Cool Herc's first big party in the Bronx, hip hop, in fact, has no beginning and therefore no ending and will echo in our universe forever. Gary, Jonah, thanks for those messages. Dusty, as we mentioned at the start, hip hop has evolved so much in the past half century. How do you define hip hop these days? That's a great question. I think, you know, hip hop is, it's become, it's not just a genre of music, it's a culture, right? And I think we have, we have rap and hip hop, uh, we have rap music, um, which has sort of evolved into a bunch of different subgenres, like you would think with rock music or jazz or any other genre. Um, I also would define it as maybe the, the, the top genre in, in the world right now. Um, it really dictates the, the course of pop culture and uh, dominates that conversation. Natalie, when we think about hip hop specifically as a means of cultural expression, how do you see that manifesting today? I think it definitely manifests globally, especially, you know, with you're looking at the growth of Afrobeats and, you know, that explosion of the popularity, it's just a voice, you know, and so somebody had mentioned that it's a, you know, antecedent of, of uh, or, ja- or the blues is an antecedent, and that's what it is. It's giving a voice to pain, people at the margins, people who are younger, people who are trying to uh, say that they're here, people who want a voice in society. A visibility aspect, yeah. While the 50th anniversary of hip-hop is counted from DJ Cool Herc's Back to School Jam in the South Bronx, hip-hop's true origins is often a subject of debate among music aficionados, and that includes some of you. Blessed are those who struggle. Oppression is worse than the grave. Better to die for a noble cause than to live and die in sleep. <laughs> Blessed are those who courted death, who offered their lives to give, who dared to rebel rather than serve, to fight so that we might live. That's the last poet, originally last poets of the world. Brooklyn, Bronx, 1962. So 61 years back, at least, for hip-hop. That's where hip-hop really came from. Thanks for that message. And Natalie, I see you you nodding uh, in response to that listener's comment. I mean, is it possible to trace hip-hop's origins to a single starting point? No, it isn't. And I, I, w- I had done some research in Jamaica on, uh, you know, Jamaican popular music in the 1960s, and I found a lot of early battle rap. You know, what we consider battle rap that was going on in, in you know, in the streets of Jamaica. So just like many, any sort of art or culture Beautiful quote from before, there's no beginning, there's no end. It's a continuum of expression. So, Dusty, why do so many people identify that party in the South Bronx as being the start of hip-hop? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, we want to give Cool Herc his flowers and respect. And I think that was a great culminating moment. And it's something we debated about internally when we were doing our podcast was, was this really the beginning moment? Um, you know, it was, a, it, was, it was a time when... A name was given to it, but it really was the building moment of a lot of these uh, different evolutions. We had, you know, DJ Hollywood, who was already uh, spinning records and ramming over them in the years prior. Um, but I, th- I think this just gave, gave it gave a moment for people to look to to start. Um, but it was something that was culminating over over years, um, and really thankful to have that because it helps inspire these conversations. But I, I agree with with everyone saying that it was no beginning and no end. Well, hip-hop started out as a means for people in marginalized communities, especially Black and Hispanic people, to share their struggles. And from their experiences, we get tracks like N.W.A.'s 1988 hit, Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton, crazy, the name Ice Cube. 
present in hip-hop's early hits? Definitely early hits from the West Coast. I mean, you saw early giving voice to things like police brutality, um, the lack of jobs, the lack of economic opportunity, um, violence, you know, misogyny, all the, you know, very difficult things that you might see on the five o'clock news you could also hear in hip-hop. So, And was that specific to the West Coast? You, you, you said the West Coast, but what about in other parts of the country or was that... It, that's really for all of hip hop. You know, it's really, you know, it's a really organic expression of what people are feeling, what they're seeing. It's very cinematic. It's painting a picture about a specific time and giving voice to people. I know for me in the 80s, I was in suburban Indiana and, you know, just listening to the NWA, it had such anger. It was putting anger and putting, it, it was expressing an anger that I did not know how to articulate, you know, about some of the uh, racial social conditions that were in in our society. So, um, you know, it's always been a wonderful, you know, Chuck D called it the CNN of Black America. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a way of reporting what was going on. Okay, well, EXP's 50 Years of Hip Hop podcast explores major moments in hip hop's evolution. The episode on Organized Confusion's 1994 song, Stress, examines the complexity of early hip hop themes. I insert my lifeline into the track. The energy in me is the poison with no unrevealed remedy. I'm spreading like leprosy throughout the record label because mine's put me in my career in jeopardy. The title track to their 1994 opus, Stress, The Extinction Agenda, trains their focus on a killer of black folks that isn't gun violence or the police. Rather, the one felt in the heart and veins manifested in black people as shortened lifespans and hypertension at levels significantly higher than in any other group. Stress. The legacy of previous generations, something like 15 of them, impossibly traumatized at the hands of white supremacy, socioeconomic terrorism, and the transatlantic slave trade. Now, I'm not even talking about the structural institutional racism that are the bones of our society what Biggie called the everyday struggle in 1994. I'm not talking about the environmental poisons that descendants of enslaved people disproportionately live amongst, or how the effects of enduring everyday racism promote inflammation, one of the main drivers of disease. I'm not even talking about the obscene maternal mortality rates of black women. I'm talking about those wounds of yesterday that literally live in our individual bodies and minds today. Hey, Dusty, what artists or groups were particularly influential in using hip-hop as a means of, of fighting oppression and, and raising the genre uh, to this level of recognition as a resistance movement? So many. Um, so many count. Some you've already mentioned here, uh, Public Enemy, NWA, but even going to the, back to the beginning, um, you know, Grandmaster Flash, um, you know, even some of the early Curtis Blow records, it, it's so intrinsic to to all of hip hop and, and especially those early years and, and through today um, that you really can't dig deep without finding these topics coming up in the music. We're celebrating 50 years of hip hop for this installment of The Record Club. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. 
But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Our record club is celebrating 50 years of hip-hop. I want to bring two new guests into the conversation. Kira Gaunt is an ethnomusicologist and professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at the State University of New York at Albany. Kira, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I love 1A. Oh, great. And Kathy Andaly is also with us. She's a media coach, documentarian, and author of several books about hip-hop, including God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip-Hop. Kathy, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jen. Now, women have been a part of hip-hop from the very beginning. Lady B was one of the earliest women rappers. Here's her 1979 song, To the Beat, Y'all. Kathy, help us understand the chronology of women's involvement in hip-hop music. Who were some of the earliest artists in the genre? Well, you can't discuss uh, the history of women in hip-hop without giving all respect to Cindy Campbell, the sister of Cool Herc, who actually threw the party at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue. Um, You know, Cindy was throwing a back-to-school jam, basically trying to earn money to pay for school clothes. So um, if, if... Cool Herc is the founding father, then most definitely Cindy Campbell is the founding mother. And I think from that point on, as the jams evolved and and there were artists coming outside to, you know, support the DJ, it took a handful of women who we call the um, hip-hop matriarchs to come up to those uh, DJ booths and say, can I get on the mic? Mm -hmm. And I think that is what kicked off the history of women in hip-hop. Kira, do you think... Well, why? I should just. <laughs> why do you think women's contributions to hip hop culture are so often overlooked? Well, uh, the answer is patriarchy. Um, the institutions that produce commercial music are run by men. Uh, the social media platforms are run by men. But in the early days, people like Sylvia Robinson was uh, seemingly an exception. Although there were a number of women who produced music, Monica Lynch, Sylvia Roan. There were a lot of black women who played and white women who played a really significant role in the early days of hip-hop. Well, we have to talk about MC Light. She's one of my favorites. She was the first woman rapper to release her own full-length solo album, Light as a Rock, in 1988. Here's a bit from the opening track, I Am Woman. I am woman, hear me roar. When I grab the mic, it's never a bore. Man, I'm on stage saying I'm rhyme. I often wonder what you think of mine. A Light as a Rock peaked at number 50 on the then Billboard Top Black Albums chart, and it spent 16 weeks there. Kira, what was the landscape like for women hip-hop artists trying to break through in the 80s? Uh, as early as 1979, like you said, Lady B with her To The Beat Y'all uh, track, which was released, I think, just a few months before Rapper's Delight was released by Sylvia Robinson on Sugar Hill Records. 
1979, there were a number, you can find on YouTube, a number of singles released with women and sister acts and various uh, uh, girl artists that you can find on record. By 1981, Shah Sharon Green, considered the mother of the mic, had um, auditioned to be a part of a group called the Funky Four Plus One More, and she was the Plus One More. She was a 15-year-old who uh, was uh, putting all of the guys on the playgrounds down. For 50 years, when hip-hop began on the playgrounds, there, were no gir- there was no hip-hop without women, and there was no playground activity with uh, jam park jams without girls. So... Um, 1981 is significant that Shyrock, um, even uh, Daryl DMC from from, uh, Run DMC says that uh, Shyrock influenced his rapping style on his early albums. When he first got on record, this echo chamber style that Shyrock was doing over the beat, uh, Seven Minutes of Funk with the um, Zulu Nation, Mm -hmm. uh, which you can also find on YouTube was setting, you know, a genre, he calls it a genre-changing musical phenomenon for rappers. And 1980 is important as well because of a double-dutch group. KRS-One has said at a Harvard University lecture that double-dutch was one of the basic elements of hip-hop. And in 1982, the Fantastic Four double-dutch team that won the American Double-Dutch League was uh, found by a woman named Cool Lady Blue, who was running the Roxy in Chelsea, and took them from the Lower East Side on the first international rap tour in 1982 with Africa Vambata, uh, Grand Mixer DST, now DXT, and Rocksteady Crew. A lot of women's history has just been lost because we haven't been able to tell the stories. You know, as a genre, hip-hop has often come under fire for misogynistic and, and sexist themes. Uh, Kira, how does the work created by women hip-hop artists fit into that paradigm? Um, I think because, because this kind of masculine dominance has ruled the day throughout much of the music um, on urban radio, um, on MTV, and... Uh, even in the margins in which hip-hop was situated in the early days of MTB in 1981, women have always had to deal with um, that they've been excluded and shut out and um, not given the same attention. And it's not just by the influencers behind the scene. It's also that we women tend to not spend our ear uh, time, our airtime, listening as much to women, and that's true of all audiences, not just women, as we do men. Uh, That's not necessarily by our choice. It's because what we hear on the radio is dominated by music that's produced by men. Uh, I call it a kind of musical mansplaining. Um, uh, Even if you look at the songs that girls twerk to on YouTube, for example, research that I do, most of the songs they choose to dance to are by men. Um, So we've been conditioned, uh, we've been taught to not listen to our own voices. And so um, things are changing, obviously, with so many women on the scene today. Um, But we still have to remember that uh, the Annenberg uh, School of Media does a study of gender 
uh, inclusion in the recording studio. And in the last seven years, women have been only 2%. It's risen from 2013 at 2% to 2.8% in 2022. But that number is abysmal when it comes to women of color or, or black women in hip-hop. So despite the fact that we are seen a lot and maybe heard a lot, we're not reaching the bottom lines the way, say, a Drake does. Women hip-hop artists across the decades have achieved major commercial success. Um, Salt and Peppa's 1993 album, Very Necessary, is certified five times platinum. Here's Break of Dawn from that album. And Nicki Minaj is one of the best-selling rappers of all time, with more than 100 million records sold. Here's a bit from her 2010 hit record, Moment for Life. I fly with the stars in the skies. I am no longer trying to survive. I believe that life is a prize, but to live doesn't mean you're alive. Don't worry about me and who I fire. I get what I desire. It's my empire. And yes, I call a shot. Kathy, you talked about what comes next. And I'm thinking about the number of collaborations we're seeing among women hip-hop artists. We're talking about Cardi B, uh, Lotto, Flo Millie, Doja Cat, Ice Spice, the City Girls. They're teaming up with other women to create chart-topping hits, uh, like Glorilla and Cardi B's collab, Tomorrow Too. Why do you think we're seeing this wave of collaboration among women specifically in hip-hop right now? Um, I think it's more of a widespread awareness that it's they're better together, you know, for so many years. Um, the music industry as a whole was so divisive when it came to women in hip-hop. So trying to separate them, pit them against each other, do all of these things to keep them separated, um, which was also just kind of feeding this mass marketing agenda at the labels. And now women are beating the patriarchy really at their own game and um, unifying and creating these incredible collaborations. I mean, it's reminiscent of the late 80s, and early 90s where the same type of collaborative efforts were happening. Kira, your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think we are um, challenging the patriarchy. I'm not sure we're beating the patriarchy at its own game yet until women have a broader spectrum um, of representations so that uh, in, a, in a, any given hip-hop music video that is being reacted to and danced to by young girls... Uh, women have more than a couple of pieces of strings on. They're wearing more clothes. Let's just say that there's equity in the clothes wearing to men <laughs> in the hip-hop videos um, because most of the people who are listening to popular styles of music are children, young people, and it will be nice to have some diversity in the representation of what women look like just not being seen and heard. And, and I want to add that it, it makes women have to do uh, three times the work triple threats in the music industry. You got to dance, sing, and look good. You got to have nails, hair, and everything done. And for a period of time, a lot of people didn't hire women or want to sponsor women in the music industry because it was too costly. And it is costly. Black women, two things about black women we should know. Uh, 
we have zero to $150 of net worth. Maybe it's worse since the pandemic. And the number one cause of death for black women is intimate partner violence. So if I could segue to something, we got to mention Lauren Hill. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite tracks by Lauren Hill is from uh, a verse on Manifest on the score by the Fugees, where she talks about, I loved hard once, but my love wasn't returned. I found out the man I died for, he wasn't even concerned. And time he turned, he tried to burn me like a perm. The thing that I love as an ethnomusicology about women in hip-hop is to focus on what they do with the music, the sampling, the lyrical flow, um, the rupture of that flow. So women are bringing it. They're, they're eating it, as people like to say today. Um, and there's, there's still work to be done. Mm-hmm. Kathy, is there an artist who really stands out to you, a, a, a woman hip-hop artist who you say either now or in the past, she completely changed the game. Like, I know who comes to mind for me is is Missy Elliott. But what about for you? I would argue Lauryn Hill. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely, 100%. um, In terms of, you know, coming through a group like the Fugees and then achieving mainstream success while still kind of um, sitting in between the two worlds that, you know, the, the sexy and the lyrical. And I think also what Lauren has managed to do is inspire a new generation of women in the space. I think that, you know, it, it's fairly easy for the optics to say that women only look a certain way or sound a certain way right now. But I, I point to artists like Rhapsody, mm-hmm. who definitely um, are a part of the, the Lauren Hill journey in hip hop. And, you know, creating a variety of uh, sounds and stories. And yeah, absolutely. For me, it's Lauren Hill. We're discussing the 50th anniversary of hip hop. That's Kathy Yandley. She's an author, media coach, and documentarian. And Kira Gaunt. She's an ethnomusicologist and professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Albany. Kathy, Kira, thanks. Coming up, we listen to more of your favorite hip hop songs and talk about the future of the genre. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's get back to our conversation looking at 50 years of hip-hop and turn now to its future. Since its creation, hip-hop and its influences have spread far beyond the United States. Here's a bit of French rapper SCH's song, Autobahn. So since 50 years, uh, since that party in South Bronx, we've seen hip-hop give way to various subgenres. There's drill and hyphy and crunk. 
Natalie, as the music continues to evolve, what do you make of these these offshoots? I think they're amazing. Um, it's wonderful to hear how, you know, when you travel around the world, uh, to see how people have picked up these elements of hip-hop, the graffiti, the dance, breakdancing, and the MCs, the DJ. and But they're bringing their own flavor to it, um, their own language. You know, some of the really exciting Afrobeats I'm hearing where they're, you know, they're using Wolof, they're using their traditional native languages in addition to the colonizer's language. So lots of exciting things. So I think what it is, is it's just still speaking to people. Like 50 years later, it's still connecting with a young generation of young people, and they're finding ways to give it a voice, mm-hmm. give themselves a voice through the music. Well, there's also a vibrant underground hip-hop scene, and, and I'm using that term generally for independent artists who are creating music outside the commercial sphere. Dusty, how do underground and niche artists influence commercial hip-hop? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's really um, interesting to watch how underground music is moving lately, Um where they're really, you know, hip hop has become the dominant genre, to fuck with better words, in in the public sphere, and I think independent artists are finding a way to, to create their own scenes. Um, I, I think a lot about Billy Woods and his Backwoods Studios uh, label that he he runs and also is an artist on, and I think just by running counter to the mainstream, um, it, it turns some heads. Like they're able to move a lot of records without radio play, without um, having the the mainstream publicity that some of these other artists are having. And I think the bigger artists are starting to, to notice and um, oftentimes you'll bring them in for a feature and that kind of starts to shift where we see popular music going in hip hop. And Natalie, I want to hear your thoughts on the sort of tension that I feel at least because hip hop culture is deeply embedded in popular culture, but there's also at, at times been a resistance to hip hop culture's influence on popular culture. And then sometimes you see hip hop culture in popular culture, but it's been divorced from its from its roots. How do you think about that interconnectedness? Yeah, it's I just remember when I in the eighties when I had moved to Indiana, um, they would not play the hip hop verse on the song. Right. Mm. So in black radio stations, like it was like the devil's music and it was not, you know, like you weren't you couldn't see the the videos on MTV. And it was sort of like this thing that was really sort of shoved to the margins. And now it's at the center. Um, And so that's had a interesting creative tension because, you know, as you said, I mean, hip hop culture is American culture. And so a lot of the dominant images that you're hearing really reflect all the American cultural values, misogyny, capitalism, you know, embrace of capitalism, pimping culture, like all of that is part of American culture, even like the shoot 'em up Western, like that's, there's nothing more American than that. And so there's been a real tension, um, you know, around that. And then so the but then the hip hop ends up getting blamed and sort of pathologized as this thing that's very uh, negative. And, um, so you still see remnants of that, even though it's dominating the charts, even though it's still ruling, you know, this a new generation of, of young people. Mm-hmm. We got this email from Kira who says, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the queer, femme, and masculine artists who bring intersectionality into the mix from Big Frida, Young M.A., and Saucy Santana, plus Lil Nas X and Doja Cat, changed the game for rappers, breaking the internet on the gender spectrum for cis to queer. Now, in recent years, 
musicians like Lil Nas X have really pushed the boundaries of acceptance and inclusivity in hip-hop for LGBTQ artists. His 2021 debut album, Montero, explored the complexities of being your true self in the music industry. But his song, Industry Baby, from that album went number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and sold six million copies. Natalie, when you think about the future of hip-hop, whether it's it's through a lens of who participates or how far it reaches, what's the future you imagine? The future I imagine is one in which the Black communities that created this genius see the benefit, the financial, the ben- financial rewards of it. I see Black people owning the means of production. I see Black people more involved in making sure the money continues to cir- circulate in the Black community. This culture came out of extremely segregated environments, you know, um, it, it come out, comes out of racial oppression. And so I would like to see some of that people benefit from the capitalism that um, that they were sort of embracing. And somebody mentioned there's a lot of regional sounds. I, you know, Go-Go is one of my areas that I've covered. This is sort of like a cousin of hip hop. And they're sort of one of the examples, I would say, of where you're able to have Black-owned cultural industry that's that spreads into fashion, people owning storefronts, people owning clubs, people owning the means of productions, distributions. And I think like regional music like that, I would hope that that would be the future where where black people have some more creative control and economic control. Dusty, what about for you? What's what's the future you imagine for hip hop? Yeah, I mean, Natalie said, I think there's a the community aspect. Um, you know, again, Going back to to the roots of um, hip hop, it, there's so much that comes from uh, community gathering and I'd say collectives. Um, that is something we we think a lot about at KAXP. Um, when you look at groups like the Soulquarians with D'Angelo, Questlove, Jay Dilla, Q-Tip, or the Native Tongues, uh, Dungeon Family that gave us Outcast, or even more recent ones like Odd Future and ASAP Mob. Um, and even here in Seattle, the Black Constellation Collective um, of artists just gathering together with um, similar mindsets and supporting each other. I think that's where we've seen historically a lot of like movements and in, in, the movement of hip hop as a whole, but even movements within hip hop um, where artists are really like gathering together and, and creating their own vision together. And when artists do that, it, it can't help but break through to the mainstream and help uh, dictate new paths forward and inspire even more people. Natalie, as as we hear so many celebrations of the last five decades of hip-hop, what's a story or, or stories you hope we don't overlook in that celebration? Oh, man. Um, I guess I mentioned the one, which is, you know, go-go music, looking at how other regional, regional cultures around the United States um, and that are rooted in black communities similar that are analogous to the Bronx. I'd like to see more of that. Um, I'd like to see more, um, I'd say less tying success to financial success um, because, you know, you're, you're part of a, you know, there's one way to measure success is whether you're ruling the charts and there's other ways of measuring success. um, You know, like the ways that, um, you know, we just heard, like looking at these collectives who've been able to sort of collectively build their voices together or the women in hip hop that we talked about who are doing collaborations and, you know, realizing that they're stronger together. Um, I would like to see a more continue to see more critical voices in that we do, do not allow the dominant 
you know, BET Awards version of what hip hop culture is and what black culture is um, be used to define us as a people and what our values are. We are vast. Uh, We are, you know, there are many, there are more incredible artists that are making music now than ever before. We don't always hear them. Um, There's new ways of gatekeeping, you know, around uh, social media. And, you know, there's ways people get on using um, uh, social media. So there's a lot of exciting new things that are happening that are outside of the mainstream. That's Natalie Hopkinson. She's an author and professor of media, democracy, and society at American University. Also with us, Dusty Henry, the associate director of editorial at KEXP, a listener-supported music radio station based in Seattle. He's also a writer of the 50 Years of Hip Hop podcast. Thanks to you both for joining us. And I want to end with this message we got from Christine in North Carolina. I'm a pretty old gal, nearly 77, but before I die and go to heaven, I'd like to say that I could recite the full-length version of Rapper's Delight. I could rock and roll with so much soul. I could rock till I'm 101 years old. Now, I don't like to brag and I don't like to boast, but I love hip-hop from coast to coast. Somebody scream! Happy 50th birthday, hip-hop. Love ya. Christy, thank you so much for that message. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash SparkCashPlus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.